Today's sermon comes from John 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. When you hear someone pray, and I mean in a, in a intimate, dedicated, kind of undistracted prayer time, when you hear someone pray, you really get an idea of what matters most to them. You get an idea of, of what really moves them in their heart. You get a, a picture of their relationship to God the Father and, and what they pray and, and how they pray. One of the things we miss in John 17 sometimes, I believe, is that this whole chapter is a prayer of Jesus. You, you look at verse 1. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, well, what are these words? It's a lot. It's the last four chapters from John 13 at the Last Supper, and it's the last several hours that have gone from Last Supper to this point. And so when he had spoken these words, it says, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, which means that his disciples watched Jesus and heard Jesus pray. 
Now, what's significant about this is we hear in the Gospels of Jesus praying all the time, right? He, it'll say he, he pulled away for a period of time and prayed. We have the Garden of Gethsemane where three times he went away and he prayed. But you never know what Jesus prays in those times. And other than the Lord's Prayer, which is a short prayer teaching his disciples how to pray, and then brief moments before Jesus heals where he'll lift his eyes up and say a sentence prayer, you really don't get an idea of what Jesus prays. And yet here we have this beautiful chapter where we get every word that Jesus prayed, and it's a long prayer. But we get a, heart, a glimpse into Jesus' heart. We get a glimpse into what matters most to him because this is his last prayer before he gets arrested. Minutes after this, hours after this, he's arrested and he goes to the cross. And what you see in this prayer is this theme of unity and oneness. That that matters to Jesus. That he cares about unity deeply and about the oneness of his church, the oneness of his people. Now, why? Why does unity matter so much to Jesus? And therefore, why should unity and oneness matter so much to us? To answer this, we're going to look at the, the foundation of unity, the preservation of unity, and the purpose of unity. Let's start with the foundation. In the first six verses, you get this picture, almost a behind-the-scenes picture of the Father and the Son's work in redemption. You get this picture of how the Father and the Son are working together to rescue a people. And what you'll notice is that three times Jesus says, or he refers to, the people whom the Father gives him. Right? You see it in verse 2. Jesus says, to give eternal life to all whom you have given me. Then verse 6, whom you, Father, gave me out of the world. And again in verse 6, you gave them to me. So the Father, God the Father, gives Jesus the church, gives Jesus people, and then says to his son, son, go accomplish their salvation. So Jesus is given a people by the Father, and then the father says, son, go, go accomplish their redemption. Go accomplish their salvation. And that's what Jesus does. He says in verse four, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Now, Jesus says that past tense. Accomplished. Why? Well, he's hours away from being nailed to the cross. So all this three years of his ministry, he was sent to the earth, and for three years, he gets, he's, he's at the end here, having accomplished what he came to do, which through his death and resurrection is to rescue a people from every tongue, every nation, every tribe around the world for himself and to accomplish their salvation. Now, what, is that, what does this have to do with unity? Spring semester, my senior year of college, and I, I've shared this before, uh, but we went on a senior class trip to the Ohio Pile, which was a whitewater rafting river. And we got there, and, and, and when we got there, the river was near flood stage. It was high, it was flowing fast, but this rafting company it didn't deter them. So my classmates and I, a few of us jumped in a raft. There's a guide. 
We're heading towards First Rapid. The guy's barking out the calls, row left, right, you know, all that business that goes on. We hit the First Rapid. It's great. We get through the Rapid, and, and there's no more calls being barked out. We turn around, and our, our guide got ejected. He's ejected. So we start spinning because we don't know how to row at this point. We're spinning into the next rapid, and we hit it sideways. Raft flips, scatter. Everybody scatters. And the river was so high and flowing so fast, there was no chance of getting back in the boat. It was just scatter. So I get picked up, rescued, about a half mile down the river. One of my other classmates gets rescued about three-quarters of a mile down the river. And one of our classmates that was in my boat got rescued over a mile down the river. That's how fast it was flowing. We got rescued. We get back to the starting point, And we're all, all of us, especially on my boat, we're sitting around somewhat stunned, shaken. You, know, you feel like you're going to die after you go through about four rapids that way out of a boat. We're shaking and we're drying off, we're warming up, and we're telling the stories of how we were rescued. We weren't bragging about how with great feats of strength, we swam from the center of this raging river to the edge and grabbed a tree and pulled ourselves out. Or, or with great coordination, when the life raft came out, we, we swam over to it, we grabbed it. We, did, we weren't bragging. We were humbly talking about how we were rescued when we couldn't rescue ourselves. When we, were, when we were flowing down that river, there was no rescuing ourselves. And we told the story back at the school for months and months. And the people that were in my boat, I knew them. But after that experience, we were incredibly close as we shared this story of being rescued. See, the foundation of unity is understanding our common rescue, our common salvation. The foundation of unity is not talking about how we rescued ourselves, bragging how good we are and how, how well we performed, that God merited this, this salvation, this rescue. No. Common foundation of being rescued where we're not the hero. See, when we talk about unity, that's where it starts. That is where unity starts. It's a people that understand in great humility that they didn't rescue themselves and that we talk about our common rescue and our common salvation where we're not the hero, but Jesus Christ is. And that we brag and boast about Jesus and his salvation and his rescue of us. So the foundation of unity starts with knowing you've been rescued and you did not rescue yourself. The Father gave you to Jesus and said, Jesus, go accomplish his salvation. Go accomplish her salvation. And Jesus did it on the cross and by his resurrection. And that's the start of our unity. Second, though, it's knowing Jesus Christ. So it's not just knowing you've been rescued, but then it's knowing the one who rescued you. In verse two, Jesus says, he gives eternal life to all the Father gives him. But then in verse three, he defines eternal life. And it's striking how Jesus defines eternal life. Look at verse three. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now, if you had to define eternal life, 
Is that the way that you would define it? Probably not. The more common definition of eternal life is that life that you get somewhere in the future, that life you get in heaven one day. And yet Jesus does not define eternal life that way, nor does John throughout his gospel. Jesus says that eternal life is not just the life you get one day in the future, that eternal life is a different kind of life now that's produced by knowing Jesus. That this relationship with Jesus Christ now in the presence, in the present, produces a different kind of life. And that's how John in his gospel defines eternal life. That's how Jesus defines eternal life. Now, what does this have to do with unity? Everything. Everything. Because if, if the church of Jesus Christ finds its commonness or its oneness in anything or any person outside of Jesus, it is set up for division and fracture. And if eternal life is merely defined as some life you get in the future in heaven one day, then it sets you up in the present to center your oneness and commonness around something other than Jesus. But if eternal life is knowing Jesus in the present, then it changes everything. Because Jesus Christ is the one commonality that the church has, period. Knowing Jesus Christ. Now, that being said, it is very easy to find commonness, to find oneness around other things and other people than Jesus. I'll, I'll name a few. You can seek oneness around schooling preference, public, private, homeschool. Uh, you can seek oneness around political affiliation, Republican, Democrat, independent. Uh, you can seek oneness around socioeconomic status, blue collar, white collar. You can seek oneness around race, white, black, Hispanic, Asian, Indian, Middle Eastern. Uh, you can seek oneness around worship music and style. Contemporary, traditional, hymns, praise songs. You can, you can make oneness in the church around a lot of things other than Jesus. And all of those commonalities other than Jesus inevitably lead to divide and lead to fracture. And that's why the foundation of unity, the foundation of it, is a common rescue where we boast about the hero of our rescue, Jesus Christ. And knowing Jesus, and Jesus being the commonality, the oneness that the church is centered around. So why is unity so important? We've seen the foundation. Let's look at the preservation of unity. Preservation of unity. In verses 13 to 16, you'll see that Jesus makes this distinction between being of the world and in the world. He makes this contrast, right? Verse 15, he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. Verse 18, I have sent them into the world, right? So there's in the world. Jesus makes it clear. But then verse 16, they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. 
there's of the world, right? So this contrast between in the world and of the world. Now, the key to this is understanding what Jesus means by world. Because if you misinterpret this or you don't define it rightly, it, it leads to a problem. The world that Jesus talks about here is not the physical world we live in. The world that he's talking about here is the world of people that have rejected God. And as we saw last week, there's a religious world of people that have rejected God that may show up in church every Sunday. And there's an irreligious world of people that have rejected God. Jesus makes that clear. And so there's this distinction between in the world and of the world. Jesus says, I'm sending you into the world of people that have rejected God. And because of that, verse 14, there's gonna be hatred, opposition. Saw that last week. Verse 15, the evil one's gonna oppose you. I'm sending you into a world that's rejected God and therefore you can expect rejection, but you're not of the world, meaning that I've rescued you and now you've come to know God and to know Jesus, that you have a different kind of life now called eternal life, right? So you're not of the world. We often think that one of the greatest threats to the church of Jesus Christ is the presence of evil or a world that's opposed to God and his ways. But that's the biggest threat to the church is this presence of evil, this presence of opposition from the world. If that were the case, if that, if just sheerly the presence of evil and the presence of a world opposed to God were the greatest threat, then Jesus wouldn't send his people and his church into the world. Right, he would protect his church. He, he would remove his church from the world. He would isolate his church from the world. He put up walls, whatever it takes. No, the biggest threat to the church is not the presence of evil or the presence of an enemy. The biggest threat to the church is when the church forgets that there's an enemy, forgets that there's a world of people that don't know God and then are lost and without hope. Because when that happens, when the church forgets that there's an, there's an enemy, and forgets that there's a world of people that don't know God, it turns in on itself. And it starts to bite and devour itself. And it starts to divide over insignificant things. Let me, let me compare this to marriage. You know, marriage is supposed to be two people who are allies, right? But oftentimes, marriage turns into two people that battle it out like enemies. Right? And if you're married, you know what that you know that tension. Right? That, that marriage is supposed to be two allies, not two enemies. That marriage is supposed to be a, 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 a husband and a wife locked arm in arm, faced outward. And, and what you notice if, if you're married, in marriage, when you are as husband and wife facing outward, when you're seeing the Lord work in your neighborhood, in people's hearts, or at, at work through coworkers, uh, when you see the Lord at work. When you're praying for people, when you see Jesus transforming your children in powerful ways and you're praying for it, when, you're, when you recognize the spiritual battle that there's an enemy, there's a real spiritual battle, Ephesians chapter six, and you're praying for strength and, and that Jesus would transform things and change things, it's amazing how the toothpaste tube that's not squeezed properly 
and how the toilet seat that's not, that's left down and how the dishes in the sink that don't get clean quite on time and moved, how those things don't matter as much. They become insignificant when you're outward facing and you see the world and the enemy and the battle that's taking place. It's the same in the church. That when the church is, is faced outward and sees the battle and realizes there's an enemy and a world that needs Jesus. It's amazing how doctrinal differences, worship styles, worship songs, a, a program or a lack of a program, those things just don't quite matter as much. They certainly don't become the source of division. When the church recognizes we have an enemy, so we put the boxing gloves off and we lock arm in arm and face outward instead of putting the gloves on and, and duking it out within. And so oddly enough, Jesus preserves unity by sending his church into the world to send the church into the world where there's an enemy and there's evil and there's darkness. But that's where unity is preserved. And as he does that, right, he sends the church into the world and he guards and he protects and he keeps it, right? Verses 10 to 12. In verses 10 to 12, Jesus describes how he has guarded, uses that word, guarded the disciples, but then verse 11, he says, Holy Father, keep them. That word keep means to guard, right? Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. Then in verse 15, again, keep them from the evil one. So we see here the keeping or the guarding. What's the so that of it? Why does he guard and keep? Well, verse 11 says, what? So that they will be one so that there will be unity. That's why he guards. That's why he keeps. Now, two questions around this. One is, how does he guard or keep? And the second question is, what does he guard against? So as God sends his people and his church into the world, how does he guard the church? Look at verse 17. Jesus says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. The word sanctify there means to, to set apart for service. So Jesus is asking his father to set us apart in the truth of his word for his purposes. Now, What's he guarding against? What's he guarding against? We typically think that God guards the church against external threats, right? External threats, that that's what he's guarding against. But what we find when we read the New Testament and even look at church history, you look at chapters 15 and 16 that we just got through, there were plenty of external threats coming as Jesus was headed to the cross on his disciples. That didn't destroy the church. The New Testament church was constantly receiving external threats from the Roman Empire. That did not destroy the church. 
Uh, communism in Europe did not destroy the church. Uh, communism in China has not destroyed the church. In fact, what we find is when there's external threats, the church actually flourishes. And there's a greater degree of unity in the face of it. No, what, what divides the church, what destroys the church's unities, unity are internal threats. Internal threats, which is why God guards his church by setting it apart. And here's the key, in the truth of his word, in the truth of his word. Paul in Acts chapter 20 explains this. Listen to what Paul says in Acts chapter 20, verses 29 to 30. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things. That means things that are not in accordance with God's word, twisting the word of God to draw away the disciples after them. Now, this is striking. The, the church in Acts chapter 20 is in the midst of a ton of external threats. They've got external threats everywhere. The early church was persecuted beyond belief. And yet Paul's concern here in Acts 20 is not about the external threats. His concern is about the internal threats. People within, losing the word of God, not staying in line with the truth of God's word. And that's why the way that, that God preserves unity is setting apart his church, but setting apart his church in what? In the truth of his word. That the truth of God's word would be what preserves the unity of his church because that's where the greatest threat comes is from within. Not external threats. The church flourishes in the, face, in the face of that. And history has shown it when there's external threats. It's the internal threats that are what Jesus and, and, and the Father guards against to keep his church unified in the truth of God's word and not twisting it and changing it and perverting it. So why is unity so important? We've seen the foundation. We've looked at the preservation of unity. Finally, the purpose of unity. What's the purpose of unity? Look at verse 21. That they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that, here's the purpose. Here's the purpose of all the work towards unity. So that we get along and we're comfortable. No. No, the so that of our unity the foundation of it, our common rescue, knowing Jesus, of God guarding and keeping by setting us apart in his word. All of this work, the so that is so that the world may believe that you sent me. And then again in verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Why? so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. The purpose of unity is mission. The purpose of unity is mission, that the world of people that have rejected God and don't know God 
would come to know him. Now this begs the question, why would unity or oneness of the church draw people to God? You say, the world has plenty of unity. You say, wait a minute, we're in a polarized world. Exactly. See, the world understands unity. They have unity. I'll give you a few examples. The LGBT community is unified. The evangelical right is unified. The ACLU is unified. White supremacy groups are unified. You see, the reason why the church's unity draws the world to know God the Father is because the church's unity is not based on political affiliation. It's not based on skin color. It's not based on socioeconomic status. It's a unity of different people, diverse people, that when those people come together and worship together and love one another and embrace one another, the world scratches its head because it's never seen such a unity. See, the world can point to the, the groups that fragment and unify over a cause or a reason, but the world doesn't understand when those groups actually come together in unity. Uh, let me give you a few examples. Look at verse 26 before I give you those examples. I have made known to them your name, Jesus says, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. It's talking about this love of God the Father that resonates in God, through God, in his Son, in the Holy Spirit, in the Trinity, and that when we're united to him, that this love flows through us, and it's a love that is blind to color. It's a love that is blind to political affiliations. It's a love that is blind to socioeconomic status. It's a love that is intended to rescue the nations, every tongue, every tribe, every type of person. Can you imagine, and I'm going to use two examples that reflect the polarization of our world right now in our country. Can you imagine a member of Black Lives Matter and a member of a white supremacy group member standing next to each other, worshiping God and embracing one another? Let me give you another example. Can you imagine a member of the LGBT community and a member of the Alliance for Same-Sex Marriage standing together, worshiping God and embracing one another? And you say, I can't imagine that. That's because it's impossible. 
except through repentance and forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And so when it does happen, when the gospel takes two people that are polarized and tears down those barriers and convicts of sin and brings repentance and forgiveness and they unite and they embrace and together as one, they worship the same God, the world goes, how in the world did that happen? And the answer is Jesus Christ, period. And so it, it draws the world when they see that. A church that's diverse across all kinds of boundaries, standing together, worshiping together, it draws the world in to say, where is that coming from? What empowers that? And the answer is it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. In an article in Christianity Today, Philip Yancey, he wrote this. As I read accounts of the New Testament church, no characteristic stands out more sharply than diversity. Beginning with Pentecost, the Christian church dismantled the barriers of gender, race, and social class that had marked Jewish congregations. Paul, who as a rabbi had given thanks daily that he was not born a woman, a slave or Gentile, marveled over the radical change. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. One modern Indian pastor told me, most of what happens in Christian churches, including even miracles, can be duplicated in Hindu and Muslim congregations. But in my area, only Christians strive, however ineptly, to mix men and women of different castes, races, and social groups. That's the real miracle. Diversity complicates Rather than simplifies life, perhaps for this reason, we tend to surround ourselves with people of similar age, economic class, and opinion. Church offers a place where infants and grandparents, unemployed and executives, immigrants and blue bloods can come together. Just yesterday, I sat sandwiched between an elderly man hooked up to a puffing oxygen tank and a breastfeeding baby who grunted loudly and contentedly throughout the sermon. Where else? Can we find that mixture? Jesus Christ unifies his church. Jesus Christ brings a unity that only he can by his Holy Spirit. And he calls his people and he calls his church to know him. See, this isn't a... In our polarized world, we talk about we need to be unified, absolutely, but that's not the starting point. For the church, the starting point is knowing Jesus Christ. And when that is the one thing we have in common, not our skin color, not our socioeconomic status, or any other human category, when it's knowing Jesus Christ and knowing his rescue, the common rescue, when that is the focus, then diversity happens and unity happens and, and surrounds that commonness in Jesus Christ. May this be a church 
that is unified in Jesus Christ around knowing him, around knowing his rescue, about being preserved and kept in the truth of his word so that the world will see and the world will come to know the Savior behind it all. Let's pray. Father, our sin fractures. Our sin creates human categories. Our sin causes us to be comfortable in categories. And yet your gospel, as we see in the New Testament, we see here in Jesus' heartfelt prayer in John 17, that your gospel destroys all categories that we establish that divide the human race. Father, would you make us a people and a church that finds our commonality, that finds our oneness in Jesus and Jesus alone. And that by that oneness, by a group of people that wouldn't normally be together, but are only together because of the gospel that the world would see and want to know what is behind that. Father, as we come to the Lord's Supper, we confess our sin, our categories, and we commit now by your spirit to eat of one meal, of one body. And Holy Spirit, would you transform us, change us, convict us, comfort us as we eat this meal that you have so graciously given us. We pray this all in Christ's name, amen.